Please be seated. In the case of His Majesty the King and Olivier Chatillon, for the appellant, His Majesty the King, Maxime Hébrard and Julian Fitzgerald, for the respondent, Olivier Chatillon, Nicolas Lemire-Cossette and Marie-Pierre Boulet, for the intervener, Association québécoise des avocats et avocates de la défense, Cynthia Lacombe. There is a publication ban in this case issued by the Court of Quebec. Before beginning, we have a few preliminary questions. Justice Kazir has a few preliminary questions to ask both parties. Justice Kazir, Mr. Ebrard, this is a question on a procedural matter. I'd like to ask this of the respondent. If I understand correctly, before the Court of Appeal, there was a notice of appeal that had to do with the right to silence. There was a motion for permission on um, mixed questions of law and fact. And in the list, I read the motion, in the list that was deferred to the training by Justice Hogg. This is in your condensed book. I think it's at page 33. And the respondent, who is now the appellant, says in paragraph 16, the trial judge committed an error at law, of law and fact, by making an error when it comes to the fourth criteria of the Wigmore test. And then there's a discussion on free and informed consent, having to do with the logic, quote unquote, of confession. Justice Vauclair allows the motion, but essentially decides this case based no. on Wigmore on privilege. And since the evidence is rejected, there's an acquittal. Justice Mayville, in his dissent, disagrees with Justice Vauclair when it comes to Wigmore and says that the evidence must be part of the case and therefore the finding of guilt should be confirmed. What about the other questions that were submitted to the Court of Appeal? Are they implicitly answered when Justice Mayville says, I would dismiss this appeal and confirm of the trial judge's conclusions. Now, I'm sorry to put you on the spot here, but in your conclusion, you say, 
you want us to confirm the guilty finding on the the one count now can we simply ignore the other questions answer my position is that the other questions hello everybody first of all the other questions were dealt with before the Court of Appeal. It's true that the Court of Appeal does not uh, provide answers to the other questions. In the appeal, I only dealt with the question of law that uh, was dealt with in the, in the dissent. But my friend could have also raised other uh, means of appeal. That is what the court says in Kickstraw. The respondent could raise any other grounds. My friend chose not to do so. Excuse me, I can't hear you very well. You're going to have to speak more closely to the microphone. I didn't understand the ground for appeal that you raised. Our position was that our appeal as of right could only have to do with the question of law that was part of the dissent at the Court of Appeal, which was the admissibility of evidence under the Wigmore criteria, so privilege. We did not have the opportunity to raise other issues, questions. So if your appeal is granted, now we're not there yet, but Is your position that since the respondent did not uh, raise the other issues, then they must uh, lie with that? Answer, yes. There's, uh, they have renounced those other grounds uh, for appeal. One was considered a question of fact, the other a question of law, but this wasn't raised by the respondent. If the respondent had raised the other issues, then we would have had the opportunity to respond to those in our uh, fact and that's what the Supreme Court says in Kickstraw in paragraph 23 of the decision and it was confirmed by this court in the decision that was published last week I forgot its name where it says that the respondent can raise a new issue in order to defend a an argument put forward at the Court of Appeal are you finished because before the beginning of the pleadings, we're going to have to give uh, your friend the opportunity to answer the same question. Mr. Namir? Chief Justice, Justices, you can remove your mask. To answer your question, Justice Kazir, our position is that since the Court of Appeal did not give its opinion on the other points. If uh, this court decides to allow the appeal, we would refer this to the Court of Appeal of Quebec to deal with the other issues that were not uh, already dealt with. Because in this case, the appellant had the opportunity to bring uh, this appeal to the court as of right on a very clear question, but the dissent means that uh, there was not an, a clear answer question. But when you talk about the economy of judicial resources, why is it that you didn't ask for permission to appeal on the other grounds? Why wait for today to do so? Answer, 
Chief Justice, I believe that the strongest argument in this appeal is the Wigmore test, and that is why we hoped to concentrate our energy on that specific issue. Question, that's what I had understood. Now, what about the kickstraw decision? And what about the duty of the respondent to raise other grounds if they're not included in the main appeal? Answer, I would submit as respondent that uh, we intended to defend that at the Court of Appeal of Quebec and that in this case, we were going to concentrate our energies on the Wigmore analysis. That's, that was our approach. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are you talking about renouncing the other grounds of appeal? Answer, I hadn't necessarily prepared to answer that question before you this morning. Perhaps I, I would be better off not uh, explicitly renouncing those grounds and just uh, reiterate that we're going to concentrate on the Wigmore test. Unless Justice Kazira has any other questions. Yes, I do have one other question. I'd like to hear your opinion on this. I can see that uh, the factum prepared by the intervener is being presented by a lawyer who is part of the same firm as one of the respondent's lawyers. And I would like to know if that should concern the court. And perhaps I'm mistaken here, but if I understand correctly, the intervener is very clear in defending the respondent's position. There is even evidence in her factum, and that is uh, very far from the general approach that interveners are supposed to take. So I'd like to hear your take on that. What is your position? And then I will give Mr. Ebrard the opportunity to answer the same question before the beginning of hostilities, if I may. Thank you for your question. When it comes to the request for leave to intervene. It was made on behalf of the Association Québécoise des Avocats et Avocats de la Défense. And then after the fact, Ms. Lacombe was chosen. So of course, there was particular concern to not overstep the role of the intervener. But for my part, I don't think that the court should be concerned by the details here. Thank you. Alors, sur la question, Maître Ebra, 
Well, in full transparency, we have misgivings about that. This is quite uh, peculiar because in this specific case, inaudible for the interpreter. Unless I'm mistaken, Maître Boulet was not uh, fighting this case. We'd received the respondent's uh, factum, and in that factum we learned that Maître Boulet was on the case and the intervener's counsel was in the same office as Maître Boulet. Moreover, Maître Boulet, unless I'm mistaken, is the president of the association, which is the intervener, and I think that's in the, in the affidavit. So we do have concerns. We decided not to move a motion because there was already a motion for leave that was uh, issued by Justice Awagan. I researched this and there are provisions of the rules. I don't have them right here, but when a decision is handed down, there is no way to go back on that decision. But obviously, the court has discretionary authority to revisit a decision on a motion to intervene and to share its concerns regarding any link between the intervener and the councils on the case. So we have concerns. We didn't move a motion, but it's at your discretion, I believe, to intervene in this matter. Well, thank you very much. I think we've covered the issue. On the issue of arguments uh, on the part of the intervener, I'd like to reiterate the same thing that the court intimated over recent years. And that is that in Canada, evidently, obviously, we have the ability to have interveners appear before the court that can shed a different light on issues of law and the parties that are implicated. The intervener must never, however, decide or argue as to the merits of the case. He or she must shed a different light on the issue in order to allow the court to make the very best possible decision. And it has occurred in the past that interveners conflate this role, are confused about this role, and that they take a particular stand in the matter. So I'd like to reiterate once again that any and all interveners must uphold this very clear practical rule, and we will not allow an intervener to take a stand uh, either for or against a particular party in the case. So I think that's quite straightforward. And as Justice uh, Ezra said, let's uh, embark on the hostilities, as he said facetiously. Justices, will it please the court? The respondent uh, had, had confessed to having sexually abused uh, the baby of his ex-spouse in a two-week period on two occasions when she was four years of age. He confirmed his admissions uh, to a, a DYP official and agreed that this information would be sent to a, uh, the police. Is this subject to privilege or is it on a case-by-case -case basis? The appellant uh, argues that no. The appellant uh, failed to demonstrate that the information was confidential, that confidentiality was crucial to his therapy, and that it is more in the interest of society to protect uh, such statements rather than to admit them into evidence. As far as confidentiality is concerned, let's talk about the first criteria of the Wigmore test. Let me make a few points and you'll tell me which uh, element takes prefer precedence when it terms, in terms of confidentiality. 
Is it the absence of confidentiality uh, on the part of the therapist? Is there a legislative expectation um, in the matter under the Youth Protection Act? Or is it the respondent's consent to communicate his admissions to the Sciotte du Québec, which takes precedence in respect of confidentiality? Response. Well, my position is that two of, the, is two of these three elements, the absence of an assurance of confidentiality, so healthcare professionals essentially never guaranteed that Mr. Chatillon would enjoy confidentiality and that his communications would remain confidential. We acknowledge that there might have been an implicit assurance of confidentiality to the extent that he was not advised that his admissions would be transmitted to the DYP. Do you admit that the respondent uh, was entitled to have an implicit right to confidentiality right off the out from the outset? Yes, I do admit that, but it is our position in respect of the appeal to the DOIP that it couldn't reasonably have an expectation of confidentiality because he participated fully in the process and his admissions of sexual abuse were reported to the DYP. He acquiesced, he confirmed this sexual abuse in the conversation with the therapist and that is the evidence that the justice heard. And during the conversation, he knew full well that these admissions would be communicated to the police and he knew that the mother of the victim would also be informed because the victim would get uh, uh, psychological assistance. So there was no longer any expectation of confidentiality regarding his statements. And those statements are what the Crown Prosecutor would like to place as evidence on file. Now, your friends on the other side, uh, I presume, uh, are going to argue that the admissions were made to a therapeutic team, including Ms. Spearson, and that there was an expectation of confidentiality that was based on the nature of the therapeutic relationship established at the outset. So that was wall-to-wall, -wall, a wall-to-wall -wall principle in a sense. When he signed the document, he had the sense that the duty of confidentiality that he obtained at the start would persist. And this nature of a therapeutic team, this concept of a therapeutic team, how does that fact into your argument? Well, our contention is that the onus was on the respondent to prove that he had a right to confidentiality. If, for example, a person is getting therapeutic uh, help and decides to post on Facebook the text messages and emails that he exchanged with his physician or doctor, they're really an expectation of confidentiality vis-a-vis -vis these communications. In our opinion, no. So the expectation for confidentiality must be throughout the entire relationship and any other contention would uh, not be appropriate. And there's no longer any expectation of confidentiality in the sense of the first test uh, criteria of the Wigmore test. When the therapist considered contacting the DYP, 
she asked him, would you like me to do this myself? Do you want to do so? Or should we contact the DYP together? Isn't the therapist acknowledging in that very moment that the, the consent of the individual is required? And if the gentleman had said, I do not want to do anything myself, then the onus would be legally on the therapist to refer the matter to the DYP. That there's no legal ob obligation on the part of the DYP to refer the matter on to the Sciolte du Québec. No, there's no legal obligation. There's a legal possibility. The consent forms uh, speak for themselves. He signed them, says the judge. Well, there's first the conversation with the DYP and the consent form. Now, I admit that those notes would be have been forwarded to the police. You can see this from two perspectives. Either it confirms the fact that there was an absence of confidentiality at the time of the conversation with the DYP, or as Justice Mavir saw it, there was a waiver of existing confidentiality. Regardless of the way you look at it, it demonstrates that there was no expectation of confidentiality, and the onus was on the respondent to prove that he had expectation for confidentiality and that his conduct was incompatible with that expectation of confidentiality. And I remind you that according to the rules of this court, that is the raison d'etre of privilege. Without, in the absence of confidentiality, it's not appropriate to recognise the privilege that deprives the courts of relevant evidence. Sorry to cut you off. We decided here in Canada, Justice McLaughlin and Orion said that one must proceed case by case. There's no overriding principle such as the United States and in some doctrinal theories. Uh, i.e. that it is a wall-to-wall -wall privilege. We haven't opted for that in Canada, and so one must keep that in mind. Yes, our law is based on the precise elements of fact. Mr. Chatillon said that he did not want to be involved in the call to the DYP, and that had to be remained confidential. confidential. Perhaps the onus would have been on you uh, to communicate this, but when he sent the form to the, S, uh, to the SQ, he said he wasn't going to consent to that. But one has to look at each situation on a case-by-case -case basis, on, and in this particular case, the onus was on the respondent to demonstrate he had an expectation of confidentiality, and he did not do so in Audible. When the matter was up for discussion, i.e. to communicate with the DYP or the notes would be transferred to the Sûreté du Québec, is there anything on the docket that amounts to a warning, i.e. informing the accused that this could be used as evidence against him? Well, he wasn't charged at that time. The respondent, should I say. Well, by virtue of the fact that the SQ is a police organisation, there was a warning that there was an investigation underway. And as the justice contends, the respondent knew that the SQ was a police force that was investigating this matter and that sexual abuse against a child was a crime. So when he agreed that his admissions would be communicated to the SQ, well, shouldn't he have known implicitly that this would be used against him as part of an investigation led by the police force? I have a question, if I may, but I'll let you finish your point. I cut you off. I'll come back to my question in a moment. No worries whatsoever. So what I was saying is, was there any warning 
that a, the police must give to an individual as a constitutional right. No, the respondent was fully cognizant of the fact that the Sûreté du Québec was a police force that was in charge of carrying out investigations and the trial judge dismissed this and said that it was far-fetched and that the police was simply helping the DYP to go after the victim and to ensure that it was the respondent who had made the admissions and that no one else would be uh, prosecuted for the crimes that he committed. So was there a warning in the sense of the constitution, i.e. that a police officer must give a suspect? No, but in this case at hand, the respondent was clearly aware that he was taking part in the SQ investigation by allowing his communication transmitted. Is there any evidence regarding that warning? But my question is that was the respondent pressured in any way to sign the consent form? Response, no, there's no evidence that he was subject to any pressure to sign the consent form. The psychologist uh, told him that he, she was bound by professional secrecy, that she hadn't communicated with the police. This is what they're asking. Are you prepared to sign this consent form so that I can transfer my notes to the DYP? He read the notes. He signed the consent form. This was a straightforward consent form. It wasn't confusing. And he consented that the notes would be transferred to the Director of Youth Protection. So to our mind, there was no pressure uh, on Mr. Chatillon. He seemed to be ready to assume responsibility for his actions and to assist the police in the investigation. The respondent says in his factum and insists on this fact that when the notes were communicated to the Sûreté du Québec, the DYP had decided that the child's development had not been compromised and the DYP closed the file. Did that have any, does that have any relevancy here? Response. In our opinion, no. As the Quebec Appeals Court states, I think in paragraph 49, that uh, the DYP, the police, that this is not relevant to the issue of privilege. If you look at the law, if there's a reasonable ground for thinking that uh, the development or safety of a child is compromised, the DYP can send all the information about the report to the police. And in this case, there was reason to believe that the development or safety of the child could have been compromised. And so it made sense to transmit that information to the police. If the DYP concludes that there is a, that the child is compromised, then it can send the information to the police. And that duty to uh, transmit transfer the information to the police is similar to the duty of uh, therapists. I'd like to come back to the second and third uh, steps of the Wigmore test. What are the errors that uh, the court identified that allowed it to intervene? It's in paragraph 53 of uh, the majority. I'd like to know 
why you say in your factum very briefly how does the majority of the court of appeal make an error and is uh, the dissenting judge's opinion on those two points enough for us to make a decision in paragraph 51 the court of appeal deals with the first and third steps of the Wigmore test and if I understand correctly all it says is the possibility of disclosure does not eliminate the professional privilege but in this case we're not dealing with possibility of disclosure we're dealing with an actual disclosure and so we're beyond the therapeutic uh, protection this uh, individual consented to disclosing the information to the DYP in Ryan the individual was worried about a possible legal order that would force the disclosure to take place and the judge said in Ryan that the possibility of uh, judicial order would eliminate privilege and there would never be any privilege because professional privilege could always be uh, eliminated by a judicial order but this is a completely different context we're not talking about a potential disclosure we're dealing with a, a confirmed disclosure and we argue that Justice Mayville does not uh, deal directly with uh, the Ryan argument, but rather with the fact that the respondent did not have any expectation of confidentiality because he took part in the call with the DYP and then waived no. his right to confidentiality by uh, allowing the therapist to send her notes to the SQ. So we believe that 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 it uh, Justice Mainville was right in uh, determining that uh, the third and first conditions were satisfied. And when it comes to the legal uh, meaning of waiver, do you think it's enough? I refer to this court's decision in Glegg. We're talking about waiver in a civil context, in a medical setting, and so it has to be someone who is making a free and voluntary decision. But in the case at Barr, it's up to the respondent to demonstrate his expectation of confidentiality. He, it is up to him to show that he had not uh, renounced that expectation of confidentiality. I don't think it is up to this court to develop the concept of uh, confidentiality. It is up to the party, the other party, to demonstrate that his yes. waiver was not a tr an actual waiver of confidentiality. And as I said a little earlier, we can also see the transmission of the information to the SQ as a confirmation of the waiver when it comes to the discussion that he had with the DYP. So there are different ways of looking at the issue, but I don't think it's a file where we re require a real development of the law when it comes to professional confidentiality. Question. 
regardless of uh, the burden of demonstrating confidentiality, do you agree with a waiver must be clear and given with full uh, consent? Yes, of course. We're not dealing with a constitutional right either, but of course it must be free, clear, and the individual must be aware of all of his or her rights. In the case at Barr, the psychologist said, I am bound by professional confidentiality and that's why I haven't sent these notes to the police yet. So I think it's very clear all of the criteria of waiver had been satisfied. especially if you look at it, at it as a waiver of confidentiality and not just an absence of uh, agreement to waiving the confidentiality. So I will end uh, this section. I'd like to add a few words on the assurance of confidentiality. In our opinion, there is no assurance of confidentiality and the Court of Appeal deals with uh, this in a very problematic way. They discuss the duty of uh, reporting to the DYP. And this is in tab nine of my condensed book, paragraph 48. Contrary to what the judge says, I I'm not convinced uh, that uh, the child was at risk and therefore there was no obligation to disclose this to the DYP. Ms. Spearson stated that there was no contact with the child and therefore the DYP did not need to get involved. In our opinion, this is extremely problematic because they imply that health professionals must themselves determine if children are compromised or in danger and therefore if they should report this to the DYP, but that is not what the law says. And the law says if they have a reasonable grounds to believe that the safety or the development of the child are compromised, then they must report to the DYP. And that is regardless of any parental intervention. So I talk about that in my in my uh, factum and I am going to go over this very quickly because I have very little time left but the Quebec Court of Appeal reverses the test. The test for reporting is not the existence or not of uh, whether the child of, of a compromised state it's whether it is uh, determined that the child is at risk. And so the decision goes against uh, the actual state of the law. Question. I understand you're against uh, paragraph 48, but do you agree with the last two sentences when the Court of Appeal says, I'm not convinced that the law states that uh, the DYP had a duty to report this to the police? And yes, I agree with that. The state of the law is that they can report to the police, not that they must. The Court of Appeal further on says this has nothing to do with the admissibility of uh, the admissions, but it's very important in Quebec law to recognize the duties uh, that exist uh, when it comes to reporting. Now, as for the 
further Wigmore test to uh, further Wigmore steps. Of course, even after the waiving of confidentiality, after the uh, the respondent had taken part in a call with the DYP and transmitted the information to the SQ, and after he was arrested, is it really possible to say that the absence of confidentiality compromised his therapeutic treatment? There's no evidence to that effect. I will end with the last step of the Wigmore test, of course every condition must be satisfied. So if you determine that the first step was not satisfied, then it's not necessary to go any further. But it's important to weigh the different factors here, and we're in agreement with the trial judge's weighing. It is important to punish sexual abuse against children and that must take precedence over the importance of uh, favoring therapeutic treatment for uh, people who uh, abuse children. In National Post, this court stated that there's considerable public interest in ensuring that crimes are investigated and punished. But when it comes to that step, what is troubling in Justice Vaugère's reasons is that there's jurisprudence that is presented to him, and it says that in certain cases, even if there's confidentiality, if the individual is dangerous, then you have to balance that with the interests of society and uh, the search for truth. And so in the Balancing Act, you have to go towards the quest for truth. The judge says, in this case, things are different. But it seems to me that in this day and age, pedophilia is a serious crime that causes serious permanent harm to children in prison, even as if it happened with sentencing, this court said that because of the evidence that exists today as to the permanent damage that is caused to children who are victims of uh, abuse, we have to take that into account. I don't know if that was uh, presented to, to Justice Vauclair, but it seems like he's a little bit disconnected from uh, reality if he doesn't claim that pedophilia is a, a very serious crime. I agree with you entirely and I won't repeat what was said in Friesen, but of course sexual abuse against chil of children causes serious damage to society and there's a specific regime for violence against children in the Youth Protection Act. They are the only exceptions to medical confidentiality in Canada. And so this shows very clearly that when it comes to medical confidentiality, legislatures give precedence to the importance of protecting children through youth protection or through police investigation to the 
professional confidentiality of medical professionals. The legislator recognizes the crucial nature of medical confidentiality. That's what the Ontario Court of Appeal recognized in RVSR. Justice Vauclair mentions this in paragraphs 62-63 and says in that case from 1985, the court did not weigh the charter in the balance. It was a little short. That's my opinion. I won't comment the judge's work in this case, but we argue that the principles of self-incrimination do not come into play because he was never constrained. But in his defense, Justice Vauclair, yep. in paragraph 60, 76, adds another argument, and I'd like to hear your opinion on it. He says that stopping people with deviances from pursuing their therapy in the long term will be harmful to children and that it is more advantageous. He says it goes against common sense and discourages people with uh, deviances to seek the help that they need because of their condition. In other words, neutralizing this accused person must be weighed against the social interests of allowing all people suffering from sexual deviancies to seek therapy in confidence and in the long term this would better protect children that's what he says in 76 paragraph 76 response in our opinion justice of does not focus in on the real deterrent effect of a confession of sexual abuse so in this particular case it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis that one must proceed the fact that there is a possibility that admissions of sexual assault may be used as evidence against an individual who is getting therapy, should that prevent that individual from getting therapy? The trial judge contended that there's no evidence of this, and I'd like to add the following. The decision that Justice Wagner just alluded to goes back to 1995. There was a motion that was dismissed and in Canada there is a possibility that admissions of sexual abuse made in therapy may be used against the accused. Is there any evidence that this has created a deterrent effect on those who suffer with, from sexual deviance. No, there's no evidence of that uh, assertion. And as far as the ultimate protection of children is concerned, what we do not know in this case is how effective the therapeutic treatment is of those persons who suffer from sexual deviancy. And we do know that he was getting therapy, including group therapy. To what extent does that quote-unquote heal 
individuals of that ilk and with those predispositions vis-a-vis -vis children, we do not know. There's no evidence as to its effectiveness. So should that prevent the police forces to neutralise an individual, quote-unquote, that suffers from sexual deviancy or encouraged to seek out therapy? when we don't even know that there will be positive outcomes and that that person might leave therapy as they see fit after a month, for example, if the police force doesn't obligate them. The individual is completely free to put an end to their therapy. So what is the best practice to protect children? One has to weigh that up. But in light of the facts in this case, the police force's intervention was more appropriate than simply uh, encouraging therapeutic treatment, uh, the outcome of which uh, we do not really know, and there's no certainty that it would protect the best interests of children at the end of the day. I have 16 seconds left. Uh, I'd simply remind you of the remarks that you made in Friesen. Paragraph 65, protecting children is one of the most fundamental values of Canadian society. Selection violence against children is particularly reprehensible because it amounts to the contrary of that, those values. So protecting children must be factored in this. Quebec Court of Appeals insisted on the importance of uh, protecting individuals from self-incrimination, but completely ignored the importance of protecting children and that that is better served by using as evidence admissions of sexual abuse. So for all those reasons, we believe the appeal should be allowed and the guilty verdict should be restored. So unless you have any further questions, I've finished. Well, thank you very much. In relation to your last comment, the values of the Charter, I didn't see in the grounds that were, or the arguments that were made, the weighing in the importance of protecting children in the equation. Maître Lemire Corsette, the floor. Good morning, Justices. We are here to rule on the admissibility of the admissions of the respondent in this particular case. Mr. Chatillon wanted help and he went to his family doctor and was referred to the Institut Spécialiste to get treatment, specialised treatment for his sexual deviancy. He trusted his therapist. Are we talking about pedophilia? I uh, Sorry, I didn't hear you properly. When he sought out therapy, it was for his, intoxic his, his drug abuse and uh, alcohol abuse. Well, no. When he, yes, when he went to seek out therapy initially, it was for drug abuse and alcohol abuse. But in the course of his therapy, he disclosed other issues, including the issue at hand. So he was convinced that his admissions 
and that, uh, in fact, that confidentiality would prevail. And that is why he spoke honestly and transparently to his therapist. And he revealed the entirety of his sexual deviancy to the therapist. The Quebec Appeals Course, in majority, said that evidence of self-incrimination should be, not be used against the individual. Uh, and the dissenting judge at the Appeals Court also considered that the admissibility into evidence of an admission of a patient in therapy was uh, highly doubtful. However, to, in his opinion, despite the fact there was a legal obligation to disclose on the part of the DYP, for the dissenting judge, uh, this was an issue of wavering or forfeiting one's right to confidentiality. So our stance is quite clear. There was no waiver of confidentiality in this particular case. And for us, the admissions of the uh, respondent must remain privileged. I'm sorry to cut you off at this stage, but I do have a question for you. The trial judge decided that uh, the consent of your client was free and informed regarding the disclosure of his admissions, but you are contending that the accused did not waiver confidentiality rights to his uh, statements. Are you not calling into question the factual conclusions that the trial judge reached? Response. Uh, we are calling into question the trial judge's appreciation of those findings. The evidence speaks for itself that there was no waiver of confidentiality. When it came time to transmit these admissions to the DYP, the respondent was never asked whether or not he agreed. It was presented as a fait accompli to him. But given that there, he was getting therapy and throughout the sexual abuse, there was a choice that was offered. And they, the DYP could have said, well, we've got his admissions and we're going to disclose them regardless of what the respondent does. And that may factor into the third test of Wigmore regarding self-incrimination. But given that he had no choice, one can't categorise this as a valid waiver. Having discussions about this issue during therapy, from my experience, that is quite normal. A therapist will discuss issues with a patient to understand what their perspective is. And that is precisely what happened in this case, isn't it? Indeed, for Pinel, this was an obligation. However, as far as discussing the ramifications of this was concerned. That was the approach that uh, Pinel took, uh, i.e. that we will disclose the abuse to the DYP because our mandate is to protect children. It was never a matter, and the evidence is uh, unanimous uh, on this matter, it was never a question of incriminating the respondent. And that uh, is what we see from Mr. Chatillon's understanding and the therapist's uh, Argument, uh, arguments. The idea was to protect the victim on the basis of that uh, and that the information would be disclosed to the DYP. When I say agree, that doesn't amount to a waiver of confidentiality because he was given no choice to say, oh, I refuse disclosure of uh, this information. I agree, but the evidence on, on file doesn't support what you just asserted. Response, in my humble opinion, it does to, in the sense that he thought that he was getting therapeutic assistance and that the police would never disclose this. 
and the therapist agreed. I have a final question. What do you say of, uh, in the condensed book, uh, in relation to the condensed book, tab uh, 6, paragraph 24, Chief Justice McLaughlin, Ryan, what would you say to that? The decision in that case was quite clear and okay. straightforward regarding the issue of privilege. What would you say to that argument? Response. One must proceed on a case-by-case -case basis, considering the facts in a case, whether privilege should exist or not. And in this particular case, and what sets it apart from other cases and circumstances, for example, Emma against Orion, when the admissions or rather the therapeutic file of a patient would be used against her uh, to attack her credibility. The opposite is being done here. We're seeking to use the admissions of Mr. Chatillon in order to incriminate him, and that is the crux of the matter. Emma Orion does not support uh, the fact that there is never any confidentiality, or rather that the court uh, sets it out as all or nothing. It says rarely, not never, ever, indeed, but uh, Justice McLaughlin uh, rejects the approach of the Supreme Court of the United States uh, where there's a policy of all or nothing. And in this particular case of Mr. Chatillon, I would contend that the solution to this problem is uh, a partial uh, understanding of privilege. There is no privilege to prevent communicating facts to the DYP, given the ultimate social objective to assist children who may be being compromised and who may need assistance in their particular situations. But uh, this idea of uh, partial privilege allows one to permit privilege in certain cases and in certain circumstances. And this court has acknowledged that uh, concept on a number of occasions. And I uh, draw your attention in my condensed book, uh, tab and I'm sorry to cut you off, Maître, but just to come back to your last comment about uh, proceeding case by case. When I read Justice Gauclair's uh, uh, arguments in paragraph 11, he says that it's unfair and contrary to the values of the uh, Charter to use the appellant's uh, admissions as he is seeking therapy and communicate when he's when he's talk when he's uh, that seems to be the principle. That's not what the Supreme Court asserted, and that is not what we see in jurisprudence in Canada. My reading of Justice Vauclair's arguments, first and foremost, he contends that the decision he hands down in this case does not lead to an automatic acknowledgement of privilege and that one must proceed on a case-by-case -case basis. In the case of the respondent, if you look, take into account all of the circumstances, there should be privilege, but one can't generalise across all cases. And one of the decisive elements in this case is limited use of confidentiality and privilege in order to assist the DYP. But Privilege does not 
provide immunity in each and every prosecution. I understand that in the case of Mr. Chatillon, the only evidence available were, was his admission. But one can't extrapolate that uh, when a patient voluntarily goes and gets therapy and that there's a disclosure of sexual abuse against a child, one can't extrapolate it to all uh, and overgeneralize. The D Once the DYP gets the information, legally they have to conduct an investigation and that is what occurred. They were able to conduct an investigation, they were able uh, to uh, track down the accused, uh, the mother, and uh, get answers to their questions. And on the basis of that, they decided to close the file. They were able to do so without uh, calling on the police and without uh, incriminating uh, the respondent. Maître, you said that the therapist had an obligation to inform the DYP but there was no waiver on the part of your client. He had no choice because this information was going to be transmitted to the DYP whether he said yes or no. They were under the obligation to report this. Now, let's go down your line of reasoning and assume that there was no forfeiting of uh, privilege. What about the consent form that he signed such that the therapeutic notes would be transmitted to the police? Can you also deal with exactly what Justice Manville says in 83, 84, and 85? That the judge decided this issue, had seen the, expl the explanations provided as uh, being far-fetched, certainly. When it comes to consent, in Gleg, this court stated that uh, waiver must be given in clear, free, and informed fashion. To answer Justice Cote's question, you also underline the issue of informed. I'd like you to look at the Borden case, which you'll find at tab 14, page 162 and 163. This has to do with uh, waiving confidentiality. Pages 162 and 163 in Borden. In this decision, the court recognized that the right to choose means uh, that uh, some uh, the individual can choose the route and that there must be a link between the extent of the consent and the knowledge of the consequences. In Borden, Mr. Borden had been arrested for sexual assault and the police suspected that he had also committed a second sexual offense but this was not mentioned and the police had had him sign a consent form explaining explicitly that his consent was being required for investigation this had to do with bodily fluids that would be used 
for a latch with the first offense. The fact that it had been specified on the document, investigations, plural, was deemed to be insufficient by this court to determine that the consent given was truly informed and that the waiving of right rights had been given in a context where the consequences were clear. In the case of Barr, I would submit that it's even more serious because the police is going through someone who is a therapist who has a relationship of a, a confidentiality and there's no explanation that the objective here is to launch an investigation and what is explained to Mr. Chatillon through Ms. Spearson Goulet is that the objective is to confirm that he was in the room. Another aspect is that there is no solution that is presented to Mr. Chatillon. Ms. Spearson Goulet simply said, well, look, I could send my notes that contain your admissions. If it were really just a case of confirming his identity, other means could have been used. But these options were not offered to Mr. Chatillon. And to come to your question, Justice Kazir, if it is really far-fetched to discuss this with the police officers, of course, everyone might think that they could incriminate themselves. But think about someone who files a complaint or who is met as a witness by police officers in those cases their rights are not necessarily read to them and the individual might have other things in mind the evidence shows us that mr chatillon did not know what the dyp investigation had yielded he could not but isn't this just speculation if you look at the evidence if you look at the document that was signed by Mr. Chatillon, it's not a very complex document. Isn't this pure speculation as opposed to evidence? I would submit that in this case, the burden proving that this document did constitute a waiver of confidentiality belongs to the prosecution. If you look at Borden, the context was even clear because he had been accused of committing a sexual offense. If uh, Mr. Borden had been guilty of the first offense, he might have assumed that his waiver could have incriminated him for other crimes. In this case, the facts show that uh, the waiver was not sufficient. I believe that this court should adopt the same line of reasoning as in Borden. Before dealing with the, the waiver in the written document, I wanted to discuss the concept that the waiver could be limited to a very specific objective, in this case, helping the DYP, and that's what happened in this case. Mr. Chatillon always understood that his uh, 
that the objective here was simply to help the victim of his crime. In law, which is at my tab 10, paragraph 22, the court was uh, studying a case where there was a, there were confidential documents and and the court looked at the diamond case where taking physical specimens for medical purposes was uh, tolerated but that they couldn't be used to incriminate Mr. Diamond for impaired driving. In paragraph 22 they also deal with Colorusso where it says that you cannot ignore the limited context in which personal information is obtained. The investigators obtain, uh, obtain the confidential documents, but it was in the context of a theft of documents, and that did not allow them to use the, the confidential documents to incriminate uh, uh, anybody. And this, there can be a parallel drawn with the case of Mr. Chatillon. If you look at the fourth uh, step of the Wigmore test, uh, the value of the charter and the protection against self-incrimination. In Brown, which is at my tab 18, paragraph 94, This court said that when communication of uh, information is ordered by the court and takes precedence over professional confidentiality, the residual protection of Section 7 would be hollow if it allowed an individual to be incriminated. The court recognized that despite the fact that there is no context of detention, for example, it, if Mr. Chatillon had been arrested by police, the court order uh, that uh, forced uh, the therapist to disclose this information to the DYP uh, makes it similar to the Brown case. In paragraph uh, 103, there's a discussion of the fact that professional confidentiality should never be waived in order to incriminate somebody. The partial waiving of privilege should allow the DYP to accomplish its mission in this case because there are very important objectives, for example, protecting minors. But recognizing privilege does not mean that there's absolute immunity against this type of crime. As I said earlier, the DYP investigation in other circumstances could have led victims of abuse to report the crimes to the police. And a trial could have taken place and the crime could have been punished. In this case, that's not what occurred but not recognizing privilege in this case would allow this idea that 
admissions made to a therapist could be used for incriminating ends. This approach was rejected several times by the court. This idea of using admissions, of using privileged information for incriminating purposes. At tab 12, Zaleski, the court yeah. recognized the problem with reading emails sent from an inmate to his lawyer. Nothing led to the conclusion that that information was going to be used in a in criminal proceedings against uh, the email's author. In Smith v. Jones, this is reiterated, and you'll find that at tab 11. I'd like to draw your attention to paragraph 86. Justice Corey, for the majority, discusses the importance of limiting disclosure If admissions reveal the existence of a crime but show that nobody is in imminent danger, those crimes should stay privileged. The dissenting judge went further, dealing with the dissuasive nature of uh, eliminating confidentiality. And I would say that this dissuasive element is very important in the case at hand. Yes, but this is different. You're talking about solicitor-client privilege that we all recognize is protected in Ryan, and in this case, that those are not the facts. I agree. I don't want to argue that the therapist-patient privilege should be the same as the solicitor-client privilege. They're different. But the raison d'être of the privilege as a notion is based in the notion of... Uh, of um, dissuasive action. And in this case, I don't think it's only something that would apply to the solicitor-client privilege, but could also apply to other contexts, such as uh, therapists' relationships with their clients. Justice Dixon says in Seleski, nothing could uh, produce a, a Forgive me, I, I don't follow. Where are you? Tab 12, Soloski v. The Queen, page 840. Nothing could have a, as much of a chilling effect as uh, disclosing this confidential information question. I think we're really getting very far away from the case that, that is at hand. This is an academic study. What about RVSR of Ontario in 1985? It has not been overturned and deals, it deals with the, the protection of children and all of the other decisions that you've been uh, Citing. It's very interesting, but I think we're getting a little too far away from the case at bar. In uh, SR, 
the first step of the Wigmore test is met. We're dealing with a case-by-case -case privilege, so each case is unique and has to be assessed. And in the case of Mr. Chatillon, are there any elements that distinguish it from SR? I would submit that the answer is yes. Went to group therapy, and his objective when we read the arguments was to demonstrate that the plaintiff was lying. So unlike Mr. Chatillon, who really wanted help, the goal of going, getting therapy was to demonstrate that the plaintiff was a liar and he was telling the truth. So the silence spoke volumes, according to the court, and demonstrated uh, uh, culpability. Now, in Smith versus Jones uh, of this court, to paragraph uh, tab 11, Mr. Jones did not go to get therapy as a patient seeking therapy. And that is also different to the case of Mr. Chatillon, inaudible. Detection and prevention of child abuse more important than the confidentiality of psychiat psychiatric counseling. Well, the answer to your question, respectfully, Justice Wagner, is the following. The starting point here, access to crucial information that there was a victim here, is in the admissions of Mr. Chatillon. And he trusted that his admissions would remain confidential, and that is why he was transparent and honest with his therapist. Because he had this option to do so, that is why he disclosed the full breadth of his issue. Had he not had that option, the DYP couldn't have conducted an investigation and the victim couldn't have received assistance. So in that sense, if one entertains the notion that Mr. Chatillon should have gone and got therapy to address uh, some part of his issue and that he, or that he had tried to hide this, well, that whole notion of assisting children victims would not be met. Without Mr. Chatillon's participation, we never would have met that uh, requirement. And that is the crux of the matter. And shows just how much society has to lose here. When self-incriminating evidence can be used against an individual at trial, in this particular case, there was no other evidence available, but that will not always be the case. And there'll be other analogous situations in the future wouldn't it be preferable in society to help uh, a perpetrator and to limit uh, sexual abuse against children? To take a chance, says Justice Wagner? No, not to take a chance, respectively, Justice Wagner. What I contend is that uh, allowing privilege in this case doesn't mean there's immunity when it comes to prosecution. Here, the trial judge errs in law, respectfully, uh, when he tries uh, to uh, equate uh, full impunity with the desire to uh, get therapy. So if there is an admission, 
that self-incriminating evidence would not be used against the individual at trial were a trial to take place. And in the face of substantial evidence and knowing that the individual admitted uh, to crimes such as this, well, that person might uh, plead guilty. Well, exactly. One can look at it from a different perspective. He went through that process. He consented to the disclosure of this information as part of his therapeutic process, knowing what the uh, outcome and ramifications of that disclosure would be. No, not in full cognizance of the consequences. Unfortunately, our time is running out. But uh, in terms of the respondent, Maître uh, Lemire Cossette, uh, he was sentenced on the 1st of June, 18 months behind bars and three years of probation. Where are we at in terms of that right now? Mr. Chatillon has served his sentence in full and has received parole before the appeal court handed down its decision, which is uh, up for appeal before you today. And of course, probation would end June 2023. So it's quite soon. Yes, indeed. As a rule, yes, but indeed. If I could just uh, wrap up very quickly, if I may. Recognising privilege in this particular case uh, will serve to protect children without providing immunity for prosecution of a crime. It would uphold the values of the Charter, protection against self-incrimination, as well as uh, respect or adherence to privacy rights and would encourage patients to continue their therapy. These are important social and societal objectives and one finds balance by acknowledging the importance and the primacy of privilege in this particular case. Thank you very much. Maître Lacombe. Chief Justice, Justices, For opening remarks at the start of the hearing today and I there was a parallel step of the Wigmore test. The fourth step which are set out uh, in the criminal code itself. We know that the fourth step of the Wigmore test uh, must factor in the value is that is in the analysis of
they framework uh, when in in codify so what we would suggest is that these very same psychiatric files of an acute striking a balance uh, between fact trial judges in all cases and this provision and their therapeutic process. And as far as sexual uh, assault is concerned, it's important that uh, patients do seek therapy. And Canadian courts do recognize the importance of protecting a therapeutic context between patient and therapist. Used. And this is uh, understandable when it comes to the plaintiff, for example, uh, that there uh, have been their treatment. The disclosure could hamper the therapeutic process, and that is why I uh, submit that this evidence. I, I did take into account what you said, but. Uh, Healthcare. So the legislators have put in place a framework when it comes to the private cases of plaintiffs, and this is normal. We want these individuals to feel at ease when it comes to disclosing information. private uh, files of either the accused or uh, victims. So what I would submit is that the considerations under this article should also be justice regarding the communication of their admissions. Well, just let me reassure you here, we uh, I'd like to congratulate you on uh, meeting your mandate as an intervener. Response. I have a very short reply. Two points. My friend talked about a partial elimination of the privilege, which would allow the respondent to avoid incrimination. We believe that that starts with the premise that there is a privilege where exceptions could be carved out. That is uh, what was uh, set out in Brown, Seleski, Jones. These are all cases where there was solicitor-client privilege that uh, create a uh, class privilege and they were looking at exceptions to that class privilege. But in the case at bar, we're dealing with a case-by-case -case privilege 
and uh, so uh, it would not apply in our opinion. My friend also argued that there could be cases where other evidence is available and so it's not necessarily appropriate to adduce therapeutic notes but if there was other evidence that could affect the weighing of the interest in the fourth uh, step of the Wigmore test but in this case there was no other evidence which means that to protect the public interest that the crime be punished then the evidence of his abuse was the only evidence available because the victim was so young that it was impossible to obtain that evidence in another way and if we follow his argument then the guilty person will never be found guilty and it will shake the very legal system Thank you. Thank you. I will ask you to remain at our disposal. Thank you. Please be seated. The court is ready to give its decision. Thank you to the lawyers. The majority of this court believes that the appeal should be allowed on the issue of uh, the respondent's consent and the disclosure of his admissions stated by the dissenting judge in 83 to 85 of his reasons. That is sufficient to dispose of the appeal. Justice Cote would have dismissed the appeal for the reasons of the Court of Appeal majority. Thank you.